Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is your moment. Your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Folks, today is Monday, April 27, 2020. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, the latest with COVID-19. Its impact, how we have hit the 1 million mark in the country, more than 50,000 deaths. Man, tragic uh, stories happening all across this country. Also, we will hear from Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson, uh, who will talk about what, Cong- what more Congress can do, including the PPP program, how is it that they pretty much have run out of money when they open today? We'll also talk with Dr. Dan Fabui, a pediatric emergency specialist, about how COVID-19 affects children. Also, folks, Ghana has started uh, making their own personal protection equipment, not only for that country, but also for other African nations. Also on today's show, the tragic story of a Detroit woman, a black woman, goes to four different hospitals, decline a test each time, including the one of the hospitals where she worked. Oh, man. Plus, we talk about the health and fitness as many of us are stuck inside, how you can get your workouts on even though you cannot go to the gym. Oh, my goodness. Another crazy-ass white woman. Why is she accosting two brothers, staying in an Airbnb, and calling the cops again because she doesn't recognize them? 
Some things change, some stay the same. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. More than 1 million confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States. We now are responsible for one-third of all coronavirus cases in the world. Okay, Deaths, 56,387 deaths, 137,465 people who are recovering. Uh, so many different stories we're hearing, tragic stories, individuals who are being turned away uh, as a result of coronavirus, uh, we continue to get daily updates from New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo. This is his news conference today. Monday, this is the total hospitalization rate, which you see is basically flat. Flat is not great, but uh, flat may be a reaction to the weekend, Sunday, Sunday discharges may be down. But we have the same question, how fast and how steady is the decline? We don't want to see flat. We want to see an increasing decline. And we want to see how fast that decline goes and how low does the decline go, right? When does that hospitalization rate get down to a truly manageable number? Uh, when does the incoming case number get down to a manageable number. You see, again, overall hospitalization rate is on the decline. Again, yesterday, a little less than we would like to see. But hopefully it was a Sunday anomaly because of the weekend. Intubations is down. Number of new cases, still 1,000 new COVID cases every day, because it in perspective. Down a tad from where it was. But again, these weekend numbers sometimes are a little strange. Number of lives lost, 337. Uh, still tragically high. Uh, but on the decline, if you look at it over the past few days, not that that does any, gives any solace to 337 families who are suffering today. Well, folks, I remember the White House announced that uh, because of all the negative attention he has gotten from his stupid and idiotic comments, such as disinfectants and putting light through the body, to, it, it was just so dumb. The White House announced that they were not going to be holding daily briefings. They said that they cancel one today. Then, of course, Donald Trump cannot help himself, so therefore he had to go before the cameras. And so there's another news conference in the Rose Garden as we speak. 
no shock the narcissist was going to hold another news conference. We're not going to go to it because he lies too much. If you see uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci speaks, we'll actually go to it. Frankly, normally we would take Dr. Burks, but she's been defending Donald Trump so much with his idiotic comments that it raises the question, who should actually even trust her voice with what is going on right now? Also, folks, um, uh, we are here, Alex Azar. Stories came out over the weekend where the Trump administration is looking at replacing him as Secretary of Health and Human Services. Kind of dumb in the middle of a pandemic, you replace your Secretary of Health and Human Services. Uh, it has been such a wild weekend with, with, with Donald Trump tweeting all kind of crazy stuff, blaming everybody else uh, for what's going on. It's just been utterly idiotic. Also, man, folks, a really, really sad story uh, out of New York where uh, the top ER doctor at a major hospital there committed suicide uh, because of just the toll uh, on uh, the various um, the treatment of various folks, uh, just just a really really stunning story uh, that we have been uh, following. And you know, again, so we, we talk a lot about we talk a lot about the impact uh, of this uh, on individuals and their families and not being able to see families. But the reality is, uh, our healthcare providers are also being greatly impacted. Uh, by uh, these decisions. I'm going to pull this story up here because I want you to see it. Uh, her name is Dr. Lorna Breen. Dr. Lorna Breen. Uh, and um, here's the, uh, just give me one second. I'm going to go to it in a second right now. I want you to see this here because, uh, again, these are the people who are putting their lives on the, uh, putting their lives on the line to save folks. Uh, so go right to the tweet right here. Let's go to it. Dr. Lorna Breen was medical director of one of New York City's top hospitals. Folks, she killed herself on Sunday. She had been talking about how crushed she and other doctors on the front lines were. She especially noted how hard it was not to be able to save COVID-19 patients. Man, that says a whole lot in terms of what's happening that uh, we would actually lose um, a, a doctor. We've seen other stories uh, taking place. We've seen other stories taking place uh, of other personnel folks, folks quitting as well uh, when it came to coronavirus. And so this has just been uh, stunning. In a moment, we're going to talk to uh, a doctor about, first of all, how, uh, how do we treat um, children when it comes to coronavirus. But also we'll talk to him about, again, this emotional, this physical and emotional toll that this pandemic is taking on our healthcare professionals. One of the areas where we're also focused on is what is happening uh, when it comes to um, universities, when it comes to small businesses, getting help from the government. Now we're seeing more stories of the federal PPP program, major businesses getting money. A multi-billionaire out of Texas has received more than $100 million as a part of the small business program. He's also a top Trump donor. He's made it clear He's not returning any of the money. Now we found out today that the Los Angeles Lakers received several million dollars. The LA Lakers, a small business, once that became public, they announced they're returning the money. This is just absolutely crazy. Joining us right now is Congresswoman Edwards Johnson. And Congresswoman, seriously, I, I mean, you know, how can people trust this is real when you have a basketball team, and if they were sold, are worth more than $2 billion qualifying for a small business loan. Well, I 
don't understand that myself. As a matter of fact, there's quite a bit that I have not been able to understand, and some hopefully has been corrected. But it's the same old story. Uh, it is not fair. We're trying to hold their feet to the fire. We try to call attention and make it public so they would maybe be embarrassed uh, that they are clearly ignoring what the intent of the money was for, and that was for small, low-income businesses that keep our economy going. And, um, and, and, and not only that, we're hearing that there was a story that was done today, 95% of black businesses won't be able to tap any of that money. 91% of Latino businesses uh, won't be able to tap any of that money. Uh, and so um, it, it, it's just, it, it, it is difficult to watch what is going on and to see the reality that the people who need it the most. In fact, I was watching the live stream with, with for Vice President Joe Biden. There was, it was a discussion among African-Americans. And Senator Kamala Harris says there should be a, a specific set of money set aside for small businesses with 20 or fewer employees. I'll be honest with you. It's a little hard to fathom small businesses having 500 employees. That's that's small? Not the small we're talking about. And I can tell you that we tried very hard to earmark it for small businesses. The questions that I'm getting every day from small businesses here who've done business with one institution for a number of years go to see about a loan and they don't participate with SBA. And some of them are very large banking institutions. I'm just appalled of all I've heard about since this has been going on. And, of course, college and universities are also impacted. You, you know, Harvard University, first of all, early on, Congressman Matt Getz was highly critical of money going to Howard University, even though Howard University has a hospital uh, where they're also, they were treating coronavirus patients. Well, Harvard University got several million dollars after it was public. It was disclosed. They were put under pressure, returned the money because they're sitting on a $40 billion endowment. Uh, more than $6 billion has been distributed to uh, colleges and universities. Uh, and so, you know, how is that also being awarded? You would think that those who need the money the most would be the ones who are receiving it, not a Harvard that's, that, again, can tap a $40 billion endowment, the largest endowment of any university in America. Well, I just imagine that Howard's going to have more cases than what Harvard will have. Uh, it is very interesting that it's statistics don't tell you anything usually but the truth. It's clear that it's the people who've been deprived all along of health care, of decent living conditions, of poor working conditions, who are the most vulnerable. And we always fall a disproportionate share in that population. And so we have struggled. And, I, you know, I don't know what we would have done if we did not have 50 members of the Congressional Black Caucus who has fought every step of the way to try to get some attention given to all of the things that we've talked about. We will continue, and we're stronger now than we've ever been. Uh, let's talk about the funding that's going to those colleges and universities. The money is supposed to be helped students with housing and other necessities, correct? Yes. The students get a, a good proportion of the share of what colleges get for their expense. 
All right, then. Well, look, we, we certainly uh, appreciate uh, the CBC fighting on behalf of so many folks. At the end of the day, uh, the people who need it the most, that's who should be receiving uh, the support. Unfortunately, that is not happening. And so we certainly appreciate it. Uh, Congresswoman Edith Johnson, thanks a lot. Well, I appreciate you bringing it to the attention of the public because we need the outcry. We have been on the phone. Of course, we've had to work on the phone most of the time trying to get all of this developed. But we need all the attention to the inequities that we can get so they will help us to try to keep the pressure to correct. All right, then. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Thank you. All right, folks, what we are seeing also all around the country is that how states are reopening, yet people are still not getting the message. Look at this video right here from a house party in Chicago. Well, authorities had, once the video was released, authorities came out and had to, frankly, uh, call folks out and say, look, you can't be gathering. Look, look, all, look all these black folks, you know, tightly packed at this house party. As, as if coronavirus is no big deal. This video was re, was uh, released on TMZ.com. I mean, it's just, it's crazy what we're seeing. Uh, here's a video here that uh, Pastor Jamal Bryant posted. Uh, Pastor Jamal Bryant posted this video on his Instagram uh, page of folks who were gathering in Atlanta over the weekend after Georgia Governor Brian Kemp uh, ordered uh, things to be open on Friday. And so, uh, so play this video here as well, folks. And so uh, Pastor Brian posted this video. I mean, this is, look, I mean, I, I, I want our viewers to understand something, okay? I want them to understand something. I know people are tired of being in the house. I know people are tired uh, of, um, of not being able to party and gather, but this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy crazy as african-americans i don't care look if other folks want to play these games we are dying at a higher rate than anybody else in this country we should be focused on social distancing we should not be uh gathering uh like we are here people need to people need to cut this nonsense of uh, that somehow uh black people some people, black people, are, are not impacted by all this. It's just, it just makes no sense, folks. It makes no sense whatsoever. And so, uh, looking at this video uh, is just unbelievable. And again, when I talk about the impact on us, it is huge. It is huge. And so, we must understand uh, that we must be taking precautions. And so, look, I get people want to run out of here and they want to get, they, they want to get their nails done and they want to sit here and 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 they, they want to get their hair done, uh, but. Uh, I did an event yesterday, an uh, event with uh, Congressman um, uh, Cedric Richmond, and he said, he said, look, real simple. He said, you can have the, the, the mortician do your hair and your makeup. That's also possible if you want that to happen. And so we need to understand that. Because here's the other piece. Even though coronavirus is impacting mostly adults, 2% of the cases involving coronavirus impact children of the age of 18. But guess what? The adults can actually make this thing worse by spreading it. In Washington, D.C., there have been 102 confirmed cases. Maryland, 490 cases between the ages of 10 and 19. 228 cases in Virginia, uh, those under the age of 9. Uh, also, 179 confirmed cases, uh, children 9 and under. 11 hospitalizations. There have been 355 cases in the 10 to 19 age groups, 8 hospitalizations. Folks, this is real it is impacting 
us. Joining me right now is a pediatric emergency uh, medical specialist, Dr. Dan Fabui. Dr. Fabui, welcome to Roller Martin Unfiltered. Hey, hey, thank you for having me. So, so, so first off, um, we, we saw the story of the five-year-old girl who was the child of two emergency responders who died in uh, Detroit. I think that was the youngest victim has been a four-month-old child. Uh, and so just give our viewers an understanding of how children are vulnerable to coronavirus. Um, yeah, so uh, kids, uh, kids and adults, um, everybody's pretty much vulnerable because it's new. However, for children, um, I'll just give you some unique features that make children uh, unique. Um, one is that they tend to be low to the ground. Um, and so uh, for whenever things are on the ground or objects that they grasp, they put and touch those surfaces and um, can contain viruses or bacteria and things like that. Some will argue that's how we get our immunity. That's one. But when you have something that's novel, that's new, um, where the immune system hasn't been exposed to it, it can have an impact on them. Um, other things with regards to children are, you know, one, they don't, they can't always speak for themselves. So we have to kind of figure out what their symptoms are. So when I'm seeing children or either if I'm seeing adults, when I'm seeing children, they have to be able to communicate and say, hey, I have this and that. Well, sometimes they don't have those signs. We just have to go by our instinct and understanding how we assess them. Do they have a fever? Are they acting fussy? They're not eating as well, not drinking as well. Children trying to bring, breathe faster than normal adults do. So they can, by theory, you can say actually they probably inhale or ingest more air at the same time. So if you have more virus in the environment, they can probably inhale it more likely or get exposed to it more likely than an adult would because they breathe a little bit faster. So those are just some little certain differences. Their skin tends to be a little bit different and thinner than the adult. So when bacteria and viruses get on their skin, they can get absorbed. Um, in this case, this is a respiratory virus. So I think their respiratory rate would probably make a big difference in terms of how fast they breathe. So that, those are some of the just physiologic oh. differences. But the other things are that kids tend to be actually reservoirs. So they tend to actually be the spread, the agent of spread. So the impact on them hasn't really been felt as much, which we're very fortunate for, but unfortunately we've lost also some kids. Um, and the fact that when there are, the schools were counseled, schools were closed early on, that I think had a significant impact. Only data will show that as we get into the fall and start to see if kids go back to school and start to congregate, if that happens, um, that may be another issue that may affect the second wave or third wave, depending on who you read and who you're talking to. But yeah, so those are some of the impacts uh, that may affect them. Uh, this is uh, this is a graphic uh, that was sent to us uh, by Dr. Uh, Ebony Hilton, uh, and she was on the show on Friday. And so uh, this is called COVID-19 uh, for kids. And so she sent to us uh, because she said it's uh, how to have conversation tips about COVID-19 uh, for each grade level. And then what she details here, uh, she details, uh, again, for elementary school students, middle school students, and high school students, and how we should be walking them through. One of the things, as you were talking, I was looking at these emotional red flags here where uh, she lays out regressive behavior, uh, clinging to parents, irritability, aggressiveness, clinginess, uh, also among adolescents, sleeping, eating disturbances, agitation, physical complaints, 
Uh, and so this is information that 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 we really need uh, in order to communicate uh, with children. And I think too often we keep talking about adults, 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 Doc. But we got to keep in mind we have to be having regular conversations with what's, ha what's happening with this pandemic with children. Yes, I totally agree. And you have to be very candid with them. You don't have to be graphic, but I think you have to have a real one-on-one -on -one conversation. Kids are smarter than we give them credit for. Um, and depending on their development age, that is totally correct. You have to address them on their needs. So the younger ones may just be behavioral um, abnormalities that you may see. Um, with, the, uh, with the older kind of uh, preschool populations, they may just have somatic complaints, meaning their body complaints, stomach aches, body aches, and lack of appetite. They may obsess or even have sleeping um, problems. Same thing as you get into the older population between those ages of five and eight. Um, and up until uh, 10, where you may start to see some behavioral changes. They may even have some sibling rivalries with their siblings, where they're treating them not so nice. Um, there's a fear. They miss their friends, um, so they may be upset or anxious. And if they're watching what's on TV, also as you're stressing, they also feed off your stress or anxiety. So I think those things uh, need to be addressed. For the adolescents and teens, they tend to feel invulnerable, and sometimes they can also be numb to it all. So they might not pay attention to it as much or feel like, you know, this isn't this doesn't phase me. It's not bothering me because I'm just going to be in my room and be on technology and do my thing. But then there's some that will have other um, body complaints that may uh, affect them um, also. And yes, the dialogue has to be there, what a plan is. So trying to engage them in the discussion about why we're social distancing and what the reason, break down the science to them as best as you can so they understand it. Um, give them tasks to do or projects around it. There are many resources on the Academy of Pediatrics website for children. Uh, that's the AAP, that's the organization that deals with um, children and has over 60,000 providers, pediatricians all around the globe um, that, that uh, can provide resources in addition to the CDC website. And the CDC and the Academy of Pediatrics actually work well together, have collaborated on multiple uh, issues from uh, pandemics to other types of uh, events that may affect uh, children um, to make sure that they're s surviving and doing well. All right, Dr. Dan Fabui, we certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much uh, for your insight. It is certainly needed. Uh, and our goal, of course, is to keep pr providing black med medical professionals out here. I will, let me, we'll ask you this here before I go. That is, uh, can you just talk about um, uh, the dialogue that you're having with your colleagues in, in other states as well, as, and, and how they are dealing with the physical and the mental and emotional toll of treating victims. I, I, I read some stories over the weekend, and I read this one story out of Massachusetts where these doctors went through every possible uh, measure to save this guy's life, and eventually they did, but 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 they were just just destroyed about just they could they could not figure out how pretty much they say according to this the story his lungs the x-ray it was essentially white they couldn't even see his lungs and they were just trying everything and luckily the guy survived but they said it was just unbelievable and so i don't think you know we, we, we don't i don't think people really understand what happens when if people in the, in the healthcare industry they're just seeing death after death after death and not being able to figure out how to stop this Right. Um, yeah, it's a big challenge. Um, for, from an emergency standpoint, 
Um, uh, there are a couple of hats I wear. So in my dialogue with my colleagues, it's a little bit different. I was a military guy. We did kind of this type of stuff. We saw death, but also as an emergency uh, trained physician and a pediatric expert also. So I've kind of seen the whole um, impact from that standpoint from the end user perspective, also to the biodefense, which I used to um, advise the Obama administration on. So I, I get the global picture, but when it comes down to seeing patients and dealing with death, um, we don't get numb to it in a sense when it's something challenging enough. Meaning in our day-to-day, -day, so in emergency, so if I'm seeing an adult or a kid, um, we'll respond. We're known to go running like kind of like firefighters and go put out the fire and do what we need to do and we have a, a dedicated mission and a dedicated team and we'll save patients sometimes we do lose patients and it takes a big toll on us but as the lead when you're lead sometimes you can't show that emotion out of um, not being weak but also being strong for the team but we do things what we call debriefs, um, something we got from the military also. But we would debrief and go over those and be like, hey, we tried to do this for this patient. What could we have done better? People get the vent. We get chaplains involved. All those types of things, which are resources for the staff and team if they need to vent or if something's going on. But with the volume and masses that some hospitals have seen with these cases, it has been overwhelming. It's sad, the story you mentioned about the doctor who uh, committed suicide. That's very rare, but it does happen, and it can take a toll, especially on the provider. Yes, we wear our superman or superwoman armor, but sometimes we also, at the core of it, we're human, and when we, we can see our relatives, our family in those people, what if that's my aunt, uncle, or friend, um, those types of things, and then you start to really feel the impact of it. This this is real. This There are lives that have been lost, and there, there will be still more lives lost, and we all are in it, and we have to figure out how best to get through it. With the colleagues, they've complained um, in terms of, you know, the testing, the equipment, all the things and issues and the lack of leadership uh, from the top. I mean, it's been a, a concatenation of different types of missteps from the testing issue and all of those things, lack of equipment. But from my perspective, we've kind of seen this coming. We've been calling this out uh, over 20 years for saying, hey, be prepared for pandemics, be prepared for biological disasters, uh, other types of things that we see. And we see these experiences and it seems like we either forget we have this uh, lessons re-experienced, as I call it, and many of my colleagues talk about it, where, you know, we learned this, we learned this during H1N1, we learned something similar during uh, Katrina. I'm not saying these are all on the same level, but there's a big disaster that occurs and then we want to now chase after it and try to do it when we should have been more prepared before. I hope with all this experience and sadness that we also experience and hurt, out of this is born some significant changes that actually help us and even help our communities where we have the health disparities that are another issue and another layer onto that. All right, Dr. Dan, uh, I certainly appreciate it, man. Thank you so very much. Uh, be sure to take care of yourself as well as the uh, other docs and medical personnel out there because y'all are on the front line and we definitely need y'all at full strength. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, thank you so very much. All right, folks. Uh, again, I, I talked about and we, we were talking about, of course, what was happening across the country. Uh, and, and, and I just can't 
uh, expressing now. This is another graphic that was sent to us doc by Dr. Ebony Hilton that I want to show you. It's called "Staying Alive: Spread the Word, Not the Virus." Look, every it, 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 look, it, every African American uh, should be studying this. Okay, folks, you, you, you see it right here. Obviously, wash your hand, clean dirty spaces, don't touch your face, leave your shoes at the door, cover your nose and mouth, wipe down all items. But here's the key. Save yourself, save others. It makes no sense that people, look at this, try to avoid sharing common spaces and household items. This is people in a household. No, no, we can't have people congregating in these spaces and places. Um, we, we, we can't have them uh, sitting here um, just you know, meeting the way they are. And and I'm sorry, okay? Getting a damn nail job or a haircut ain't worth your life. Sitting here wanting to go to a house party with more than 100 people, it's not worth your life. We have not gotten testing to the level it needs to be at. It hasn't. Yet people are out here playing games, somehow thinking they're bulletproof. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you're one of those people who are walking around saying, oh, black people can't get this, you are stupid and an idiot. It's, it's simply not true. We're seeing cases worldwide. We're seeing cases in this country. Bus driver in Detroit, woman coughs. A couple of weeks later, he's dead. I don't understand what people are doing, but I'm gonna tell you right now, if that was somebody who was in my house, who was so hell-bent, on going to a house party or going to hang out with some other people, they couldn't come back to my house. In fact, early on, there was a story. It was a, it was a guy in New York. His dad, the, the dad told the son, son, don't go on spring break. Don't hey, be, don't come back with that. Son ignored him with the spring break. Son came home, locked out the house. Dad said, no, me and your mama fine. Can't bring your ass to the house. I'm with dad 100%. A hundred percent. This thing is killing people. And folks want to sit here and get together, get that damn haircut, or go to a, go get some nails done. Let's go to my panel. Quadricos Driscoll, adjunct professor at George Washington University. Dr. Avis Jones, Weaver, a political analyst. Dr. Jason Nichols, African-American Studies, University of Maryland. Glad to have all three of you here. I'm sorry, Jason, it just pisses me off. I mean, I, did, I, mean, I don't understand people literally are dying. People are dying who didn't have symptoms. People are dying who are being turned away from the hospitals. And these idiots are out here having house parties uh, and saying, oh, it's no big deal. What the hell? We're bulletproof. You know, and, it, and it's crazy because a disproportionate number of black people are dying, you know, which, which makes it even more frustrating that people are still, you know, propagating this lie that black people can't get it. And I can tell you, I went to a Zoom funeral couldn't even hug the family. You know, people are out there dying in hospitals, dying by themselves. 
where they their family can't touch them. I know when when you know not to make it too personal, but I know when my mother passed. The one thing that I could really hold on to was I got to see her last breath. I got to, she was surrounded by her family. People who are dying of COVID-19 aren't having that opportunity. They're dying in isolation by themselves. They aren't allowed, their families can't have funerals. This is not a game. People are actually losing their lives. It's irresponsible. Even if you are somehow able to, you know, be asymptomatic and, and uh, you know, you don't have the, the problems, you don't have the pre-existing conditions, you can pass that on to somebody who, who does have those conditions and they could die. It's irresponsible for us to be congregating in house parties. Your haircut isn't that important. Your shave isn't that important. I see you rolling, you and me both doing our same thing here. We both, you know, we understand the importance of uh, social distancing and, and you know, paying attention to the guidelines of what public health officials are saying. Man, look, do you, it was, I don't give a damn about going to get my hair done. I don't care. I, look, do you know what it's called? <laughs> pat down. It's called pat down. I'm sorry. I, I, I am, I, I, we ain't playing this game. We're not playing this game. In fact, it was very interesting. Uh, Sethi Natainer had posted this, um, this photo called Corona Cuts. Uh, and the barber was over, and it was a trip. I saw the photo, and then a couple of hours later, I went back. He had taken it down. I think people hit him up and said, yo, bro, no, don't do that. Because there was a barber in Mississippi who was doing house calls. He's now dead because he got oh it because he was doing house calls. Yes, a well-known black barber. He was doing house calls in Mississippi. He is dead because he was doing a house calls, uh, giving, folks, giving folks haircuts. It is tragic, um, because that's a completely unnecessary death. I mean, people, uh, it's so frustrating to see people downplay the gravity of the situation. And we all have personal responsibility for our own lives, for the lives of our family, for those that we have responsibility to take care of and those in our immediate space. And, you know, they're not only endangering their lives when they're in this house party, this ridiculously crowded space, which we now know that coronavirus can stay in the air of crowded spaces. So that, you know, the the the, the, um, the, the likelihood of actually being infected by this disease actually, you know, skyrockets when you're in those compacted situations like that. But not only are you taking your, your life into your own hands, when you go back home, you're taking the lives of all of those who love you most in your own hands. And we already know that Black people face um, implicit bias in healthcare situations. So say um, someone is tragically struck with coronavirus, when they go to the hospital, um, are they going to be seen? Are they going to be tested? Uh, if there are a limited number of ventilators, are they going to be prioritized over someone else? I mean, we already know that we have all of these barriers that we have to face when it comes to accessing health care. At least have sense enough not to put yourself in jeopardy so that you find yourself in a situation where you are struggling to save your own life and all of a sudden, no one's there to help you. Quadricos, um, that's one of the criticisms of these governors who are opening up uh, the state they're so focused, obviously, on commerce. But the fact that we now have 56,000 coronavirus deaths in this country, 
Donald Trump said 15 cases will be soon down to zero. Two months later, here we are, 56,000. And we still have not had adequate testing in this country. And so, and let's just be clear, the far majority of people, super majority of people, are not going out. The concern that I have, Quadricos, is that these people are going out. We don't know where they are going when they leave. And so we had the Meharry College experts on here who said that one person, based upon how things multiply, one person could be responsible for spreading coronavirus to a million people. That's how real this is. Very simply, if you want to reopen the economy state by state, um, you have to test black people. You have to first get the test, and then you have to go to the communities and the states where obviously they are being disproportionately affected, and that is within our community. And so if, you, if these governors, and I understand they want to open up the economy, they want to get people back to work, but you have to get the test first, and you have to start testing African Americans. That is the best way to actually get the economy up and running. The reality is we don't have enough tests, despite what might be coming out of Washington, what might be coming out of the White House. And when those tests do come, however, you have to ensure that it gets to the communities most vulnerable. You mentioned the, the sister and the brother that died in Detroit. What we do know, of course, is that there is already implicit bias when we go to the hospital. A white patient, an African-American patient, or even Latinx patient who are experiencing same symptoms or similar symptoms, particularly with regard to pain and other sort of chronic conditions, might very well be told to turn away if they are Black or Latin American versus a white patient. Okay, but, this bias is still playing a, out but, even what? in the midst of this pandemic. And so it is vitally okay. important for us to make sure that we get the test A and that you test the people who need it the most if you want to open up the economy. Okay, but, but here's the crazy thing. You talk about Detroit. Black woman works at a hospital, Beaumont Hospital, turned away four times. Deborah Gatewood, 63 years old, started experiencing symptoms in mid-March, drove herself to the hospital emergency room multiple times, was denied a test every single time. I don't under, by the time she was tested, for coronavirus at another hospital. Oh my God. Her fever had hit 106, had developed bilateral pneumonia. Her kidneys began to fail. Then her heart, April 17th, declared dead. How in the hell, Avis, can you be a hospital worker and your own place of employment deny you a test? She's now dead. I hope her family sues the hell out of her damn hospital. I agree. They need to sue them for every penny they can get. And there is no excuse. I mean, we, we, we've talked about implicit bias. I'm sure that definitely played a role. But this is criminally negligent behavior, if you ask me. I believe that definitely they should sue uh, at minimum uh, in terms of turning this woman away. I mean, she went to the she did what she was supposed to do. 
Uh, when you go to the emergency room, you know, legally, you are supposed to be seen by a doctor. She has a, she worked there. She has a medical background. It's not like she was going there for frivolous reasons, obviously, uh, given the symptoms that she was were showing. And the fact that time and time and time and time again, she was turned away from the specific facility that she had dedicated decades of her life to and then had to go to a completely different space when she already had, unfortunately, one foot in the grave is absolutely inconscionable. And so, yes, it is a tragedy of epic proportions. And I certainly hope, as you mentioned, that her family sues the daylights out of these people so that they never again show that level of negligence and quite frankly, that level of just lack of compassion for someone who is obviously suffering and in need of their care. So, Jason, this White House says, oh, we have all these tests available. Well, why in the hell are we still hearing these stories of people being turned away? I mean, the, the, the young brother out of Michigan, 25 years old, set to graduate in a few weeks, uh, again, goes to a hospital, turned away, can't get a test. I mean, this is the problem we're dealing with, and our people are being screwed. Our people are being killed, frankly, by this lack of testing. No, there's, there's no question about it. The World Health Organization says that we should be testing 500,000 people a day before we even think about reopening. Uh, last time I checked, we were testing about 150,000 people per day, which is obviously far below where we need to be. Uh, Donald Trump, I believe, today got up there and said the federal government is not responsible, that they are the last resort for testing. Um, and so you have some of these hospitals that literally don't have the resources. And then, uh, you know, when you have a, a, a healthcare professional who says that they need a test because they're experiencing uh, symptoms, not only should they sue, people who were treated by that healthcare professional should sue because that put them in danger as well, it, assuming that she, you know, maybe perhaps still went to work. So healthcare professionals should be first in line to get tested. There's no question about that. Um, and, and so I, I agree with, with your other panelists that this is unbelievable, unreal that we are in this situation in our federal government. And in some cases, state governments, but for the most part, state governments have tried. But federal government has not had our backs and has not gotten people tested. And as we said, when America, you know, uh, gets a cold, black people get COVID-19. And, and it starts taking people out. And so, you know, I'm glad that there are shows like this that are, that are speaking up and, and making sure that people know this. Quadricos, um, I, I cannot imagine working at a hospital knowing full well hospitals are incubators of coronavirus. A hospital where you have given your time, energy, and talent, and they wouldn't even give you a test, and you have to go somewhere else, and you end up dying of it. Listen, Rowan, I know of two cases personally, both nurses, both African-American women. One, she was sick. Thankfully, it was not COVID-related. Uh, she had the allergies. She's a nurse. She went to her own hospital. They refused to test her. They told her to go home for two days and then report back to work. She went to another hospital. 
They refused to test her. I told her to literally raise hell, to curse and even call the police if she needed so that they could test her. That particular hospital then told her to go home. She recovered. Thankfully, she just had the flu and with seasonal allergies and showed she was able to recover. But the reality is hospitals are not treating African-American patients. And I'm hearing anecdotal stories that this is the case. They're rather sending them home because they're at capacities. And particularly if these hospitals and these clinics are in African-American and underserved communities, they're very simply not treating them. I don't necessarily have the data on this, but I am hearing anecdotal stories. I also heard a friend of mine who literally quit, very similar to the physician that committed suicide because she could not take the anxiety of potentially coming home and giving her giving her two small children COVID-19 as well as her husband. So she quit. And the and what's not being reported are the anecdotal stories that we are hearing consistently, given the implicit bias in our healthcare system, that African Americans and other underrepresented minorities are not being tested or treated. Well, I gotta can ask y'all this here. Also- now you have not now you have Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, because this ties to this here, who in the next coronavirus bill, he wants to demand that companies that force their employees to come back to work have liability protections, meaning they can't be sued. Take it away, Jason. I mean, this is this is uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, and this is why he's actually, I believe he's in trouble. I mean, you know, more than likely he, he will win re- uh, re-election, but, I, you know, he's in more danger than he's ever been in his career because he's cold-hearted and callous and thinks about uh, dollars over people. And that's one of the things that we're seeing with the Republican Party right now is that they're, you know, they think about pocketbooks over people. And I think, you know, hopefully some people are waking up and seeing that, you know, this is not tenable, this is untenable. Uh, and this is not a way, you know, that you govern it. And one thing I'll say to Quadricos um, is that, you know, first of all, what's up, Quadricos? You know, we know each other. But um, the other thing that I would say is, like, my wife is a nurse. Um, and while there are problems with healthcare, I know her biggest concern, because she deals with vulnerable populations, was about getting COVID-19 and then passing it on to patients because at in the beginning her job didn't have PPE. So I think that you know while there's a, a there are a lot of healthcare disparities and health outcome disparities, there are a lot of professionals who are worried about patients. You know they're they're absolutely concerned with with patients, particularly uh, black and Latino nurses and doctors who are really concerned with that um, and and concerned that they didn't have what they needed to do their jobs. That was the big concern that I heard from a lot of doctors and nurses. Mm-hmm. Avis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, here's the bottom Li- line. I mean, liability, um, yeah. liability. I mean, so the hell, so forcing people, oh, guess what? Hey, y'all get sued, don't worry about it. No liability whatsoever. We already saw that where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was trying to do the exact same thing to the nursing homes where bodies have been stacking up for the last two months. It, it is unconscionable. It, it just lets you know that they val- who they value and who they don't. Well, the fact that, quite frankly, they don't value anybody, clearly. They don't value human life. 
over financial interest. That's really what we're seeing here. Um, and that's also what we're seeing throughout this administration. The reason that we're having the problems that we're having right now, just in terms of at the scale that we're having right now, is because from the very beginning, this administration was negligent in its decision-making. Uh, when it got rid of uh, President Obama's pandemic response unit from day one, uh, when it completely sort of basically sold uh, our stockpile to China, but and then did not replenish it, okay? Uh, when it also uh, has specifically, I believe, intentionally suppressed testing efforts so that it could appear that there are less people who are suffering this, with this disease than there actually are. And that's why uh, Trump today has said that it's not our responsibility as the federal government, knowing good and damn well that states are under much more financial restrictions than the federal government is. And he's created this situation where states have to compete with each other and figure out how they can get supplies that the entire world is trying to get. All the time here, you have a president who has also refused to fully enact the Defense Production Act, which would force companies to make uh, the, the uh, materials that we need to be able to keep healthcare providers protected, as well as provide enough um, supplies so that people could be tested and people could have access to those things that could save lives. At the foundation of this problem is the complete uh, idiocy of this administration, the complete callousness of this administration that really cares nothing about human life and clearly only values profit. And unfortunately, in those circumstances, everyone is at danger, but the group that tends to pay the highest price, unfortunately, uh, is African-Americans. Puerto Rico's final comment before we go to a break. Ava is absolutely right. This is just, unfortunately, evidence time and time again that America will be and continues to be America, that it necessarily does not care about the most vulnerable and the poor of our society, and, and that includes black and brown people. It's about profit, and we have to continue in to make sure that our voices are heard and that we continue to raise hail, whether it's to our members of Congress or whether it's to our local and state legislators, to ensure that our voices are heard and that we get the care that we need. Folks, going to go to a break. We come back. We're going to talk about specifically the federal PPP program and how black businesses continue to get screwed and the rich get richer. Also, in the second hour of the show, two black men in the Airbnb can't just mind their own business. No, crazy-ass white woman. She got to call the cops. Wait until y'all see this video. All of that next. Roller Martin Unfiltered. We'll be back in a moment. You want to support Roller Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to rollermartinunfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. 
right, so a lot of y'all always asking me about terms, some of the pocket squares that I wear. Now, I don't know. Robert don't have one on. Nope. Now, I don't particularly like the white pocket squares. I don't like even the silk ones. And so I was reading GQ magazine a number of years ago, and I saw uh, this guy who had this, this pocket square here, and it looks like a flower. Uh, this is called a shibori pocket square. This is how the Japanese manipulate the fabric to create this sort of flower effect. So I'm going to take it out and then place it in my hand so you see what it looks like. And I said, man, this is pretty cool. And so I tracked down, the. it took me a year to find a company that did it. Uh, and so uh, they basically about 47 different colors. And so I love them because, again, as men, we don't have many accessories to wear. So we don't have many options. Uh, and so this is really a pretty cool uh, pocket square. And what I love about this here is you saw uh, when it's uh, in, in the pocket, you know, it gives you that flower effect like that but if I wanted to also unlike other because if I flip it and turn it over it actually gives me a different type of texture and so therefore it gives me a different look so there you go so uh, if you actually want to uh, get one of these shibori pocket squares we have them in 47 different colors all you got to do is go to rollingthismartin.com forward slash pocket squares so it's rollingthismartin.com forward slash pocket squares. All you got to do is go to my website uh, and you can actually uh, get this. Now, for those of you who are members of our Bring the Funk fan club, there's a discount for you to get our pocket squares. That's why you also got to be a part of our Bring the Funk fan club. Uh, and so that's what we want you to do. And so it's pretty cool. So if you want to jazz your look up, you can do that. In addition, uh, y'all see me with some of the feather pocket squares. My sister who's a designer. She actually makes these. They're all custom made. So when you also go to the website, you can also order one of the customized uh, feather pocket squares uh, right there at rollingsmartin.com forward slash pocket squares. So please do so. And of course, uh, that goes to support the show. And again, if you're a Bring the Funk fan club member, you get a discount. This is why you should join the fan club. All right, folks, today, the second federal infusion of funds for the PPP program uh, open today. I saw one story that said they ran out of money in the first two minutes because there were so many people who were in the previous pipeline that new people had difficulty even trying to get in. And now we're hearing more stories of the rich getting richer and being able to bank millions of dollars, but they're so-called small businesses. Joining us right now is Ashley Harrington, Federal Advocacy Director, the Center for Responsible Lending. Ashley, glad to have you on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Ashley, when you hear a story that the Los Angeles Lakers got several million dollars, surely you got to say, what the who, who the hell is even paying attention to these loans? The L.A. Lakers, a team that when the Clippers were bought by Steve Ballmer for two billion, the Lakers arguably could be sold for three to four billion dollars. That's a small business. Roland, I think you're absolutely right. And that's something we're seeing. We saw it with Shake Shack. We saw it with Ruth Chris. We saw it with all these huge companies getting access to a program that, like you said, is supposed to be for small businesses. The, you know, 4% of the loans in the first batch of PPP funding went to loans that were over a million dollars, but that took up almost half the funding in the program. So we're talking about half the funding in the program going to million dollar plus loans. And these are loans that are supposed to cover just two months of salary. 
So do you, the payroll you have to have to have just two months of salary get to a million dollars and more is pretty massive. It's not what we would, most of us would think of as a small business. And that's kind of the big problem we've seen with the program from the start is the ones that will get priority and that have gotten priority are these well-resourced, resourced, often white-owned businesses and franchises that will, and, and businesses of color, black-owned businesses, brown, Latino-owned business being completely passed over and missing out on this important lifeline. Okay, but like it's just stunning. At the Los Angeles Lakers would get four point six million dollars. Mm -hmm. Then you have this uh, businessman out of uh, Texas, and they rigged the system because they apply it because of these different hotels. Mm -hmm. And his company is the management company. He's a multi-billionaire. They got more than a hundred million in loans. How in the hell is that a small business? It's not, Roland. I think that's the point. This program was really set up in a way that would privilege businesses that are not small. And not only are they not small, they're not struggling, right? So we anticipated this program would be something that actually helped small businesses and kept people employed. Yet the program, the first round of the program is out of money. We expect the second round to run out fairly quickly. Meanwhile, unemployment numbers continue to skyrocket. The industries that had the largest amount of unemployment numbers are the same industries that got the smallest amount of PPP dollars. So we are doing something wrong, and this program is not set up to actually help small businesses. How is this one here? A billionaire's electric car company. Go to, go to my uh, uh, iPad, please. A billionaire's electric car company got millions of dollars under the coronavirus stimulus program meant to help struggling small businesses keep people workers employed. Nicola Motor Company, founded and led by 38-year-old billionaire Trevor Milton, received $4.1 million. The company was valued at $3 billion in a merger that's near closing. I love this here. A Nicola spokesperson told CNBC, there's a difference between a high valuation and having cash. The same guy bought a ranch in Utah last year for $32.5 million. How about you pay your own damn employees? I think you're absolutely I think you're absolutely right, Roland. Um, and when we think about the fact that not only are these low are the, these are not loans, right? These are essentially grants because they're gonna be forgiven and these companies will not have to pay them back. So what we are literally giving away money to the wealthy and ignoring the actually struggling small businesses. And you're right, there is other ways for these large entities to access capital. The reason why they are so large is because they can access capital. Meanwhile, other businesses don't have that same ability. Well, and the other issue is this here, um, is that the problem here is that by going through these banks that have historically screwed us. That's the, so basically, you want us to go through the very system that screwed us with redlining and, and failure to lend. Then we hear all of these stories uh, of banks saying, oh, well, if you don't have any loans with us, um, we're not going to pr process your applications. And so that still wasn't fixed. What, what is your organization recommending? Because here's the deal. It's going to have to be another bill. That mm -hmm. $310 billion they approve ain't enough. What is your organization recommending uh, that, that government do to actually help real small businesses? 
Absolutely. So we are asking that there's some administrative fixes that they can take right now. Treasury and SBA can set aside $10 billion for minority depository institutions and community developed financial institutions. So technically, these entities are included in a $30 billion set aside from the recent bill. But the way that bill is structured, the vast majority of banks are also included in that in that $30 billion set aside. So it's highly likely that these MDIs and CDFIs, and these are the orgs that have the best track record of serving businesses of color will not get any of that funding. So they need an actual set aside of $10 billion so that they can serve small businesses of color, especially when those businesses are the very ones who have been left out of, of this program and business lending in general. And I want to mention beyond just the banks that have shut them out, the SBA historically in their programs have shut out black and brown businesses. In fiscal year 2019, in the 7A program, which is the SBA's largest program before PPP, only 3% of loans went to black businesses. 3% rolling. Wow. Uh, questions from my panel. I'll first start with Jason. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you answered a, a lot of the questions that I had, uh, which is primarily, you know, what are small businesses going to do? What are African-American businesses going to do uh, when they can't make payroll? And if there's no uh, and if there's no other bill that comes through in time. And it sounds as though um, even when these bills come, the money is it seems to be tied up already. So can you just I don't think I fully caught you know, everything that you were saying in terms of how that uh, is, is going to work. And so can you just really kind of break down step by step for, for small business owners out there that are watching, what, what steps should they take uh, in terms of, because I think some people didn't even apply to the PPP. So what, what steps should a small business owner take? And, and also, does that also, uh, uh, does that also include people who are, uh, contractors, like say a barber who doesn't own a shop, but perhaps is is a uh, is a contractor, someone who goes out and and does their own work, who doesn't necessarily have employees, like a sole proprietor. Absolutely. So there, so sole proprietors do qualify or should qualify under this program. And we encourage businesses to keep to keep applying. Look for alternate institutions. Look for CDFIs and MDIs that are participating in this program and go through them because they historically have done a better job of working with businesses of color and working with smaller businesses. We're also asking folks to put pressure on the Treasury and SBA because again, they can do some of this administratively. They can they can reserve funds just for MDIs and CDFIs. They can reserve funds just for loans that are below 150K, which means they will get to the smaller businesses and not to the Shake Shacks and the LA Lakers of the, of the world. Um, so there's a couple of things to do that way. Also, tell your story, right? If you're having trouble getting a loan, if you're having trouble get, getting through this program, make sure you are telling folks that. There is actually a comment portal for the current SBA rule that lays out how this program runs. Submit that there because that way we have, we have information in the record that shows how this program has failed small businesses of color and how it has disproportionately enriched these larger businesses. So keep applying. As of right now, the funding has not run out. We do we do think it will run out fairly quickly, but you're and you know, it's unfortunate that you're going to have to look for different lenders and when you have a lender who's telling you no, Follow up with them and also put that put put forth that complaint as well. Tell the CFPB, tell your state AG, put that in the uh, the comment portal. Thank you. Avis, 
You know, this is such Davis? a hard issue because what we're facing is so unprecedented. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering in terms of um, black businesses uh, and, you know, already being behind the eight ball with clearly not being in with the, um, you know, intelligence uh, in terms of the information ahead of time that I think a lot of these bigger companies got to be ready for this and therefore were able to jump on it right at the beginning. Um, with this next batch of funding that, as you mentioned, will likely be snatched up pretty soon, even though some is still there, you know, it's also easy to also expect that there'll still be a lot of people who will be left out and who need this. Uh, so what other suggestions might we have for small business owners who may not be able to even um, receive any assistance in this next batch of funding? Um, any other suggestions, tools, resources that we can provide for people to be able to cobble together some level of subsistence uh, until they're able to get their businesses back on their feet? So I think there are different nonprofits and philanthropy orgs that are doing some of this work. I think that... Um, and a lot of different solutions are also being proposed. So beyond just this batch of funding, we are advocating for um, more, more funding, but also more targeted solutions for businesses of color. We know that this is not going to be enough. We know that some of our some of our businesses have already closed. Some are in the process of closing. And unfortunately, some of them may never reopen. And that has an impact not just on that, that owner and those employees, but our entire community, right? Because businesses of color are so important to our to our communities they employ almost 9 million people and generate 1.4 trillion dollars annually in revenue that's a big chunk of change and that goes directly to our communities in most cases um, so looking for these alternative ways but also continuing to advocate for our fair share both in this program and beyond right they are continuing to look for ways to provide relief and relief has to get to our communities Quadricos, what's your question for Ashley Similar to Jason's question, faith-based institutions, I know, because of the unprecedented times that we are in, are also or can also take out loans for, um, for from the PPE program. So my question is, what can faith institutions do, particularly churches, black churches, because a lot of small, rural, expert black churches will not be able to survive this program, excuse me, this pandemic. And so what advice do you have for our faith-based institutions in terms of uh, taking out loans as well? Uh, absolutely. So I think that is a great um, part of this program is that uh, faith-based entities can take part. So if you have a banking relationship, a credit relationship, you know, really going to that bank, uh, speaking with them, seeing if they're participating in the PPP program. If not, can they connect you to a bank that that, that is? Um, continuing to follow up, again, the MDIs and CDFIs, there are some that are currently participating um, um, or trying to participate, so going through those. Um, and, you, you know, honestly, it's it's very difficult because uh, by 3.30, 100,000 application has been submitted just today for this new tranche. And so... Some of it, some of the reality is we're going to have to do more and we're going to have to call on lawmakers and regulators to do more to make sure that it gets to institutions like yours. All right, then. Well, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, Ashley, thank you so very much uh, for joining us. Uh, where can people get more information uh, from for the Center for Responsible Lending? 
Absolutely. Please check us out at responsiblelending.org. We have a whole page of resources just about our response to the COVID pandemic and what's going on. And you can find that right on our homepage. So that's responsiblelending.org. Thank you so much, Roland. All right. So I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, folks, uh, the people in Ghana are doing their part to ensure that Africans uh, receive the PPE gear that they so desperately need. Are they waiting to order it from China? Nope, they're doing it themselves. Check this out. to be here today. Today we are seeing what Ghanaian ingenuity and industry is about in response to the need for personal protective equipment for our healthcare workers. The president directed that we have these key PPEs, the personal protective equipment produced in the country. The Minister for Trade and Industry, Honorable Alan Koyot Sherman Ting, took up this challenge and pushed to have five major companies take up the production of key PPEs in the country. We have about 18,000 uh, uh, gowns and then about 11,000 uh, scrubs that have been produced. But yeah, by the, by the five, together by the five companies. But um, as we ramp up uh, production, I mean, these numbers will grow exponentially. And you can see that the quality of the product is, is very high. And the fabric that has been used, uh, incidentally, is also local fabric, uh, but it's not just any fabric. I mean, this fabric uh, is specially produced by uh, Japan Textiles Limited, which is now Votastar Textile Limited. And then it moves uh, into Akosombo Textiles Limited and then GTP. And then they take it through what they call a process of mesurization. Uh, and then you get uh, this fabric. So this is very high quality uh, fabric.
Y'all, y'all, kill the music, please. I'm trying to figure out, Quadricos, um, how is it that we can't be making PPE and masks here? I mean, I'm, I'm seeing all of the, I'm seeing, I mean, uh, DuPont, for instance, uh, got the federal government. The federal government f basically paid the $1 million charter flights. So DuPont, for some reason, had the material here, took it overseas to assemble and flew it back here and then turned around and sold 60% of it to the federal government. So we paid twice. I'm just trying to figure out, there are no places to make a simple stuff in America? <laughs> Roland, <clears throat> I think you are addressing, of course, what we already know and that there is no incentive, of course, to ensure that lives are being saved. We heard what our dear sister Avis already said, what the president didn't do because of the, the lack of response time. It's fundamentally all about profit. And I am absolutely delighted that Ghana has taken the steps to do this, right? Rather than go to China, to Asia, where usually, of course, those products are made. But I also think it's important to note that there are 10 African countries, you know, currently that don't have ventilators. And in some African countries, basic supplies like oxygen and, and soap are needed really to slow down the spread of this virus. And I think while, and this slightly might be insensitive to say, that I am absolutely glad that we're not seeing the devastation in, on the continent of Africa that we are accustomed to seeing when it comes to viruses. Certainly, we are reminded of the AIDS epidemic and Ebola, but here, somehow, uh, the it has not ravaged the continent uh, to the extent, of course, in Western countries. And I think this is absolutely vital for Ghana, as well as other African countries, to be to do this. Uh, Avis. Yes, I mean, I, I, I agree. And, and I am glad that uh, Ghana has been able to uh, lend in this effort in a way that also provides uh, opportunities for their population to have gainful employment and really fulfill a worldwide need at this moment. You know, it, it's really interesting how the, the global dynamic is shifting. You know, in, in moments of crises and in moments of um, a lack of leadership, like the leadership vacuum, that creates an opportunity, uh, opportunities for new leaders to emerge. And, you know, we've been seeing now for several years uh, that several um, of the fastest growing economies on the planet uh, are uh, found on the continent of Africa, several countries, Ghana being among them. And so, you know, with everything that's going on with a lot of these European countries, uh, everything that's going on here, everything that has happened in China and other Asian countries, uh, as it relates to uh, just the devastating effects of this pandemic, uh, if Africa is able to remain relatively detached from this plague uh, as it has thus far, we may be beginning to see the very, uh, you know, dawn of some level of an even greater economic and leadership shifting uh, on a worldwide stage where we can see um, nations that in the past have been seen as sort of in the background, now moving up in the forefront in terms of 
providing leadership, providing uh, necessary materials to other nations who just a few years ago uh, seem to be the, the most preeminent. I think now we're undergoing, we're undergoing a moment where we might be at the very beginning of what we'll look back one day and say uh, was the dawn of a new world order. So I'm certainly hoping that, hoping that uh, our uh, brothers and sisters throughout the continent are able to stay safe uh, and at the same time be able to benefit economically while also providing much needed materials to the rest of the world. Jason, you would think again uh, with this here, you would see a far more aggressive attempt uh, in the United States to say, uh, keep the money in house as opposed to uh, shipping outside. Then you have these stories where some states are saying that, the, that FEMA is literally uh, sabotaging their efforts and hijacking their shipments. Yeah, I mean, we, we saw that and uh, with some of the ventilators in particular, um, you know, and then the president, you know, gives the ventilators back and says, thank you, Senator, uh, you know, with regard to Senator Gardner in, in Colorado. And in some cases, as you said, just literally just jacking them. Um, <clears throat> and the fact that we're not producing, you know, our own, as, as you stated, some of that is due to deindustrialization. Um, you know, the fact that we, uh, you know, don't produce things here in the United States. And I will say I'm very, also very proud, you know, of, of our African brothers and sisters that are, uh, you know, of their self-determination because we know China, of course, is involved in a form of debt colonialism. And so anytime we can cut China out of the continent, I think that that's a beautiful thing. Uh, however, you know, I have an uncle who, who uh, lives in Africa um, as a diplomat, and, you know, testing in Africa is not really up to snuff in many parts. He lives in, uh, in Zimbabwe, and, you know, the, I think they had 400 tests there, and 200-plus went to government officials. So people in rural areas are not getting the testing. So even though, you know, it seems as though the African continent is doing relatively well as opposed to the rest of the world, we can't definitively say that because there has been some hoarding of resources by the wealthy and powerful on the continent. And I don't want to throw, you know, uh, water on the parade, but we there is some things that are going on on the, on the African continent that, you know, aren't necessarily kosher. But this was a beautiful thing, you know, that they're doing there. And, you know, maybe we need to reach out to Ghana and get some of their PPE. <laughs> well, uh, we cer there's certainly things uh, that we need in this country. All right, y'all. You know what time it is. Why? I got you, Carl. Um, illegally selling water with our permit? On my property. On my property. Whoa! Hey! Hey, Grandpa! Get your ass! We don't live here. I'm uncomfortable. All right, y'all. So, a couple of brothers at an Airbnb in Norfolk, Virginia, where there's a whole bunch of black people, call the cops. Because these brothers were staying there. Roll it. Hello, bro. Oh, that tweaking. Yeah, here again, DoorDash. Two black males. I don't know who's upstairs. Shorty up here tweaking on the phone, calling the cops, bro. This shit real out here, bro. It is a secure building. 
Yeah, I don't know how they got in. Yeah. It's an like Airbnb. It's tweaking. They're yeah, wearing black sweatsuits. They're three of them. ain't got no shoes on. You know, they don't never wear shoes. Look at her feet. No, I can't. I don't see any weapons at this time, but I don't know if they have any. No weapons. <laughs> yo, she done finished. <laughs> yo, where's the other one? Hey, get that motherfucker Airbnb, yo. She crazy. 5, 7, 6, 8, 1, 3, 3, 3, 8. Hey, what happened, bro? Yo, it's only tweaking, bro. What's going on, man? She was waiting for us to come out. What's going on, man? Yeah, apartment A. What's going on, man? Apartment weirdos, bro. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you can go outside right now. now. We do what this you have to do. Shut the we fuck up. We do what you have to do, bro. Y'all are leaving. What's going on, man? No, it's, you're not allowed to make noise in this fuck. Take that. Get that fucking touch shit me. out of my face. Touch me. Right now. Touch me. Oh, I'll get my touch. Touch me. Oh, you gonna get your gun? Yeah, I know. We saw this to the cops when you came. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, be smart. You, you need smart. to shut the fuck up. You need to be quiet. This is my safety. This is my safety. Shut the fuck up. Sure, sure, sure. Hold on. This is my safety, bro. Look, she said she about to go get the gun. She about to get the gun. Shoot us, guys. Shut the fuck up. Close that fucking door. Y'all are out of here tonight. <laughs> look, she look, look. Try to lock us out of the building. We pay for it. Crazy. Already called the cops, now she's trying to put hands on people. And I didn't touch you, motherfucker. Man, talking about she gonna I get the gun. <laughs> Try to close the door on me. My ankle a little messed up. <laughs> nah, bro, we not doing nothing. I'm getting food. We better go back upstairs. Yeah, I was calling 344 West Green Mason. I just want to make sure the cops are on the way, please. <laughs> bro, bro, you gotta do this for safety, bro. You see, she's calling the cops. You okay. got something to show. Okay, bye. It's crazy. Y'all yeah, fucking going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the fucking music off. I can hear it from here. What the fuck is wrong with you? Turn the fucking music off. It is after 3 a.m. in the fucking morning. You can talk to nicely. Like oh, Becky. The police responded and told them that everything was okay and they get these phone calls all the time. Y'all, it was 3 a.m. I'm just, I, I, I mean, we per, we play these, these videos, um, uh, Avis, because one, these experiences that black people go through, have to deal with, and you see the, the pure insanity of you can call the cops, but now you're mad because somebody is rolling on a video, and then she wants to threaten them. Yeah. I have no problem uh, 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 helping to make her a viral sensation. Uh, yeah, I appreciate the fact that she did that. She definitely deserves it. You know, what really gets me with all of these videos, uh, you know, you see a pattern here. The level of um, violence activity by these white women uh, that's specifically perpetrated oftentimes against specifically black men. And there is a power dynamic there that oftentimes we don't really discuss. I mean, we, we look at it, we see how, you know, ridiculously unhinged her behavior is. But we also know that those men couldn't really do anything to defend themselves without being portrayed as attackers. I mean, she physically assaulted them when she sat there and she tried to close the door on someone. Uh, if I was them, if, they, if those were my sons, uh, I would be suggesting that they press charges against her. You know, I, I just I just think it's very important that we realize that this behavior is not just an inconvenience 
it's, it's not just something that we can kind of almost in a detached way chuckle at, the ridiculousness of her behavior, but we need to call it what it is. This is violent behavior that white women get away with time and time again, and they are wasting taxpayer dollars by calling the police for non-criminal activity. There needs to be some sort of action that would allow individuals like that to be pressed with, either pressed with charges or have to pay some sort of damages for wasting dollars of taxpayers by being sent on these ridiculous and frivolous um, sort of notions in terms of having police come and waste their time to harass people who are legally um, in a space that they paid for. I, you know, I'm so tired of these videos, and I and what really insults me is that I never hear what happens to the white women after. There needs to be some sort of action against these folks, because until there are negative actions associated with this reckless and violent behavior, it will continue to go on. Uh, Quadrico, this is what's also important. Here's the deal. You are under no obligation to listen to this white woman yell and scream. My deal is, I would have went to the apartment, locked the door, and was like, peace. And it's always, ha you are under no obligation. These people cannot detain you. Right. Roland, um, I actually think that, and I think I've said this on your show before, we need to start calling the police on these white people, white men and women, who call the police on us. Personally, I was, I shall never forget, I was uh, in a coffee shop here in Washington, D.C. I had on my suit jacket, bow tie. There was a white gentleman who was staring at me. I mean, staring at me. And I called 911 on him. And I said, I feel threatened. There is a man, literally, who, I'm 5'6", 140 pounds. I fear for my life. Police came out. They went to me. I said, I feel threatened. This man is staring at me. And they, they interrogated him from that point on. I fundamentally think that we need to reverse this. I'm so tired of watching these crazy-ass white people and these videos. And I think, in the, and to Abe's point, yes, and there are cases we know, of course, in which if the police does come out, it is always usually not on our side. But at the same time, I think that there are things that we need to do within our to protect our own selves, which is either to ignore the situation or to call the police ourselves. Jason. Uh, yeah, so first of all, I thought, I, I, I thought that story was hilarious. But uh, I, I will say that, um, as we know, there's always been a history of white women weaponizing either law enforcement or sometimes extra legal uh, you know, means to police black men and police black men's bodies. <clears throat> so that's not new. What's new is the camera. And I have to say, I, the one little place where I would disagree with you, Roland, is, no, I think they did the right thing in staying there and filming the full entirety of her craziness. And, you know, because the police would have come, knocked on the door, not knowing what was going on, thought maybe they turned the music down. I could bet I didn't even hear any music, so, you know... I heard her voice, I heard everybody's voice, and I didn't hear her uh, hear any music, so obviously it wasn't very loud. 
And, you know, uh, the one guy came down and said, you know, what's the problem, ma'am? You know, was was about as polite as it gets. But yet this woman is is losing her mind, going crazy. I think we need to see that um, in its entirety. Um, and, and I think these young men handled it the, the way that they should have in showing how, as, as uh, um, Dr. Avis said, you know, show how unhinged she was and, and, you know, how she even got violent and basically battered them. I think we need to, we need to see every single second of that. The law, law enforcement, I think they were also very smart when they recorded it. They said, no, we're going to wait for the police. We're going to show them the video of what you did you know, uh, in between your phone calls saying that we had weapons and all this kind of craziness. Um, you know, I, I think that they handled this in, in a very mature way. Um, and so I, I, I would uh, encourage all the young men out there, keep filming these people. Keep letting them be seen, oh, not only oh, no, no. by your audience on social deal. media, but by law enforcement. I, 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 totally, I totally agree. I totally agree about filming. But the point I'm making is this here. We've seen a lot of these videos where African-Americans feel as if we have to honor their stupidity by trying to be logical to them. The point I'm making is this here. If there's somebody white or somebody black who's talking crazy to me and I know I'm good, I'm not about to sit there and give you power to where I feel like I'm being detained. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I, that's, I, I did that, that. that's my point. Yeah. That's my point. So I agree, film her to make her look like a fool. Absolutely. But what I but what you're not, but I'm, what I'm not gonna do is feel like a hostage. Right. Like I can't go anywhere because your ass crazy. <laughs> Right. No, I, and that to me, I think is what that to me, I think is what happened. That's what I think what happened. So that's just how, that's how I look at it. Power. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, that's right. Hell yeah. Call the cops on them. It's like, man, y'all want to sit here and uh, you look at me. Look, I'm telling you right now. Um, in fact, it's so funny. I was thinking about that because uh, you were talking about how, because matter of fact, I, I, I posted the video. Damn, I need, I need to find it. Where I ain't chased this white woman down, but I damn sure live streamed her ass. We were on, um, we were on, we were on the plane. Oh, I did. We, we were on the plane, and what happened was we're getting on the plane. I'm sitting in first class. So I literally, I step in. I tell the guy, and I said, uh, that's my seat. So he steps out. I sit my bag down. I put one bag up. I could not even get in, and she just blows past me. I'm like, what the hell? You know, rude, arrogant. And so what happened was then the other passengers, uh, is other, and I'm the only black person in first class, they started apologizing for her. Like, their whiteness was like, oh, my God, we apologize for the white woman. And I was like, no, this ain't on you. So uh, talked to the flight attendant. So when we landed, obviously, we in first class, we get off first. So we get out, I tie my shoes, waiting on her ass. Oh, yeah, I waited on her. And then what happened was she comes up and she throws me this dirty look. I was like, oh, pull the phone out. She got to go to baggage claim. 
I'm walking right behind her. I'm like, you know what? You're rude and you're nasty. Oh yeah, I was I was live streaming her behind. And oh yeah, I did. I did. She's like, I don't care. I said, yeah, guess what? We're gonna put your face out here. I'm like, you're rude, nasty woman. That's what she was. And she was, and I don't know what the hell her issue was. She was just so impatient. Here's what I think, here's what I think it was. I'm being straight up honest. As I think back, I think what happened was she was probably, she was probably uh in the first group. And you know how you walk up and they say, I'm sorry, hold on one second, please. Yes, sir, please come on up and scan your ticket. I think she was mad as hell that she, that, that, that happened. Because I've, I've had those looks thrown in. I, I'll say this here, Quadricos. The closest we get to white privilege is when you got status flying and they make somebody wait for you to come, to for you to scan your ticket. That's right. probably the closest we as black people got, because, you know, they'll do that. I'm sorry. Excuse me one second. I'm sorry. Yes, sir. Uh, please come on up. No, 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 ma'am. Just wait a second. You're in group one. He's first class. You're group I one. I was actually going to say, I think she was mad at the fact that you were in first class. Yeah. And I would have taken a step further. I would have gotten off the plane, called 911, and said she assaulted me. Because I think... And she did. I mean, and she did. She did. Yeah. We need to stop Go giving white people power. And to your point, with those, those brothers in the video, I would have reversed it and called the police on her saying, I feel threatened, she's yelling, she's threatening our lives, she's cursing, she potentially has a weapon. We need to stop fundamentally giving white people our power. Mm hmm Amen. Jason? I mean, Amos, well, Jason, go ahead. No, I'm just going, all I have to say is amen to that. That's a drop the mic moment. I completely agree with that. I 100% endorse <laughs> that suggestion. Yeah. All, all right, I can say. Well, only thing I can say is, you know, I, I haven't leveled up to the point where I, I've experienced that first class uh, white, close adjacent <laughs> white privilege. I'm not there yet, but I hope to be soon. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with, with Quadricos is, you know, there there are plenty of, of historical examples where black people have every right to feel threatened when white people get aggressive. So I, I think, you know, calling the police or whoever you can call is not a bad idea. Hey, it all works. All right, folks. Quadricos, Avis, Jason, I certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much for being on our panel today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, we always talk, of course, on Mondays. We have our health segment. So in just a moment, Jessica Lane is going to join us. Uh, folks, if she's on the line, go ahead and let me know. Uh, but I want to do this here. Uh, today, I'm going to do a couple of birthday shout-outs uh, while we're getting Jessica Lane on the show. Greg Carr! Uh, of course, uh, oftentimes uh, on our show, this is a. Uh, I want to show this uh, this photo here. Uh, go ahead. This is uh, this is Greg Carr uh, and I on the set of news. Uh, excuse me, of uh, Roller Martin Unfiltered. Uh, Greg, of course, graduate of Tennessee State University, and so you see him uh, looking all looking all clean right there, and so. Uh, that's Greg. Today is his birthday. Uh, and then uh, Greg actually posted a video that I thought was pretty interesting because there were some other birthdays today uh, that he was celebrating. And so let me go ahead and pull this video here. And so uh, here we go. Uh, this is Greg Carr offering you some uh, reading uh, books uh, on April 27th. Hey, everybody. 
April 27th is the shared birthday of several watershed figures in black intellectual genealogies. Hubert Harrison is one, born in St. Croix, friends with the Garveys, and also one of the most important thinkers of the early 20th century is my friend Jeff Perry's Hubert Harrison Reader, where he's got a lot of his words. I want to make sure y'all want to make sure you're actually getting the sound here. Volume Hubert Hubert Harrison Biography, Volume 2 coming soon. Uh, Coretta Scott King was born April 27th in in Marion, Alabama. Her sister, master teacher, Edith Scott Bagley, who was at Cheney for a number of years in the arts, wrote a great biography of her. And speaking of the arts and drama, let's talk about August Wilson, Frederick August Cottrell, born 1945 in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. Kicked around several high schools, got a great self-education at the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, joined the Army for a year, got a little money from his sister the following year, and at 20 years old started writing poetry. Published some of that poetry in Black World, Negro Digest. Check out the September 1969 issue um, on, on Google Books. You can look it up. And then joined a theater company in Pittsburgh. Said he was inspired by the four Bs, the blues, Baraka, Jorge Borges and um, Lamari Beard. And then he moved at age 33 to St. Paul, Minnesota, where he joined the Umbra Theater Company, which is still there, and they produced the first of what would become his century cycle. He said, I'm going to put black American culture on stage, and I'm going to write a play for every decade of the 20th century. Uh, One of the last plays he wrote was the first one in the cycle, where he has a 285-year-old black woman bring the memory of Africa and enslavement and endurance to the family, and it carries them all the way through. Are you battling over culture? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, the only play not based in Pittsburgh. Are you battling over culture, whether it be two trains running, where the brothers got to make a few decisions? Do you have your ancestors with you? The piano lesson, the great Joe Turner's come and gone, shining like new money. King Henry III, radio golf, jitney, dealing with questions of gentrification and fences. How do you resolve conflict between women and men, fathers and sons? August Wilson, this is a great book because it traces all the places he's talking about in his plays. August Wilson said, the ground on which I stand, is African ground. This is a speech he gave at Princeton. Y'all need to start with this. He says, I am an African. We are Africans. We are going to preserve our culture. We need black theaters. We need black institutions. And I will live and die on the ground of Africa. You want to support Roller March Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. You want to check out Roller Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. All right, folks, just a couple of more. Also, today happens to be uh, the uh, birthday uh, of uh, Senator Cory Booker. And so today is his birthday as well. And so this was uh, a birthday greeting put out by the CBC Institute uh, for his birthday. And uh, I do want to give one more um, shout out before we go to uh, Jessica Lane. Uh, Today is the 31st Alphaversary. So you see, that's why I'm rocking my Alpha shirt today. Uh, and so uh, 31 years ago, I crossed the burning sands. 
Alpha Phi Alpha, uh, Palmacron Chapter, Texas A&M University. Those are my line brothers. Uh, Kevin Phillip Roberts was a, was the first black drum major in the history of Texas A&M University. Uh, the top there is my uh, number two, John Williams. I was number three. At the bottom there uh, is uh, Freddie Ricks in the blue shirt. He was number four. Paul Stafford is number five. Uh, so this is a happy day for us, but also a sad day for us uh, because, again, we crossed uh, April 27th, uh, 1989. Uh, and you see Kevin in his uh, Aggie Corps. Kevin actually died in a plane crash today uh, when his uh, plane crashed in Oklahoma in 1999. Uh, and so certainly uh, it's a uh, happy day for us and a sad day. So I just want to give a shout out to my LBs. Oh, six. All right, go, go ahead and do that. All right, folks, every Monday we have our segment Fit, Live, Win. We try to talk about uh, keeping you healthy and fit. And so uh, you might remember when I, I did a, a boxing segment with uh, my homegirl Jessica Lane out of Atlanta. And so she joins us right now. Uh, again, her, she's all focused on trying to keep us uh, fit and trim and healthy and active as we stay in the crib due to coronavirus. Jessica, what's up? Hi, how are you? I'm doing great, doing great. All right, what you got for us today? You know, people are stuck. Even though they're talking about opening gyms, I would not advise anybody to go to a gym with this Ow. coronavirus crap being all over the place. And so uh, what can we do at the house to stay active, stay fit, burn some calories, and uh, big, uh, build up a good sweat? Listen, first off, there are so many exercises you can do in the comfort of your own home where you don't need any gym equipment at all. The first one, and I'm doing this exercise specifically for people, anybody that has arthritis, that has like, a lot of people use excuses. I have arthritis, I can't do this, I can't do that. You don't need to move at all. So what you're gonna do is go into a plank position and you're gonna hold it right here. Make sure your glutes aren't too high in the air and make sure you're not too descended. You're just gonna hold this. Make sure your hands are directly under your shoulders. And then also, if you have weak wrists or weak joints there, you can come on your forearms and hold it right here. Okay? So, try All right, so to what, do is, what, what does this exercise do? What does this exercise do for you? It's a full body exercise. So it works your core, it works your abs, it works literally your back muscles as well as your body. Like literally you will start shaking. It works your arms as well. So I would say anybody that like wants to tone their arms, do it on your hands, of course. But if you're too weak to do that, then do it on your forearms. Okay, all right, what else you got for us? All right, so the next exercise is kind of like that. It's a plank variation. So what you're gonna do, this is a cardio oh, exercise. Oh, no, not plank, You're gonna not go plank. into mountain climbers not from that same exercise. So literally, you're still in that plank position, and then you're gonna move your knees all the way to your chest like this. No planks, no planks, oh, Lord, seriously? Can you hear me? Seriously, a plank, oh, my goodness. Oh my goodness! Not a plank, Jessica. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Uh, I, I can hear you as well. We see you. No problem. So, first of all, I hate planks. But first of all, what does a plank do for you? It works your entire core. It works your abs, abdominal muscles. It makes sure that you have full stability over your entire body because a lot of people, like a lot of people when they get older, they have back problems, especially lower back problems. Doing planks is like great to help that. Okay, all right. So so we so we broke up there, the video broke up. So what? do the exercise again, oh, explain oh. what it is, 
And, and 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 how many reps should we do? How many? I mean, like, what? How long do we hold it? Sixty seconds, two minutes. What do we do? Oh my god, that's absolutely crazy! I was literally doing two exercises over here. I had no clue it broke up. So what you're gonna do? You're gonna hold that plank for one minute. So again, you could do it on your hands, or you could come on your forearms and make sure your body's not too descendant. Make sure you're not too high in the hair. Hold it straight like this and you're gonna hold it for one minute. I want you to try to work yourself up to three minutes straight to start off. A three minute plank? Yes, a three minute plank, Rowan. Ooh, ooh, you, you so being brutal. Rowan is the most been... dramatic person in the world. No, 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 I'm not dramatic, I'm just saying. I mean, three minutes <laughs> is a long time, okay? Three minutes is a long time, okay. All right, a three minute plank, I gotcha. Okay, uh, so that's two exercises down. What else? What else we got? Okay, so you got the you got the mountain climbers, right? I'm not sure the video cut out on that. Yep, yep, okay. we got it. So we the got last that. one, the last one are plank jacks. So it's still in that variation. So we're here. You're opening your legs like you're doing a jumping jack. So you're opening just like this. That is for a full body. Now, of course, you could do jumping jacks in the air. There are tons of exercises you can do. Um, you could do jumping jacks in the air. You could do wall sits where you literally go to a wall and just hold it um, and make sure your body's at 90 degrees the whole time. That will work your legs, but literally that's a full body exercise. So the core in the plank is the abs. The mountain climbers is cardio. Then doing the plank jacks, that works your legs. And then going to the wall, you want a wall sit here and making sure your legs are at 90 degrees. Okay, so we got so we got the so you got three different exercises. You should do that. So what? What for fifteen minutes, twenty minutes? I mean, how no, long? One minute. You do those? One minute. Five reps of each exercise. So that will turn out to be like if you do one minute, five reps. So that's five exercises, five times. That's about twenty-five minutes. Twenty-five minutes. Twenty-five. So minute do workout. each one of those. Each, do, each, do each one of those one minute five times. Yes. Okay. Yes. How long is the break? How long is the well, break? You could do the you could do a break for one minute as well. <laughs> but when you do the plank, try to get up to three minutes. Five times. Five times. Listen, you will thank your body in the long run. But of course, you're starting off with a minute. That's thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. Okay. All right then. So, all right. So hold on. now, obviously, the workout stuff is fine. But the reality is, if you're gonna lose weight, eighty percent of it. What you tell me? Eighty? What you say? Eighty percent of it is nutrition. Eighty percent of it is nutrition. So you guys, while you are in quarantine right now, please pay attention to what you put into your body. A lot of people, especially because we already know African Americans are the number one like the main demographic that's dying from this disease. Now, we know that doesn't have to deal with, like, what we put into our bodies. That's dealing with, like, socioeconomic factors and things of that sort. But a lot of people that are dying are also dying who have, like, predisposed um, dispositions or any health disparities and stuff like that. And so a lot of people, we have obesity, we have cholesterol issues, we have diabetes. So pay attention to what you're putting into your bodies. I will say stay away from packaged products. So try to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. Of course, during quarantine, make sure you wash them off very, very well. But um, making sure that you're just not eating a lot of processed foods is, like, the main thing. All right, then. So just just give people, you know what, because you're also a nutritionist, just, just give us a basic, 
if, if you want to say, you know, what's what's a healthy day of meals? What, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about what? What are we talking about here? Are we talking okay, about so, oatmeal? Okay. Is we talking about? I mean, what are we talking about? Do we do salad with olive oil? What are we, no, I mean, so I, what are we talking about here? Question. I love this question because so many people feel like they have to eat boring to eat healthy, and that's not the case at all. So, like, when you wake up in the morning, you can I have I say boring. <laughs> okay, omelet. Okay, hold on. Let's stop right there. No, 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 no. Let's stop. An omelet. But what's in the omelet? What's is it just? Do we do we put bell peppers? Do can we put bacon yes. in it? Spinach? No, no bacon, no bacon, no bacon. So we could do spinach. We can do onions. We can do I don't know if you like jalapenos, tomatoes. You could just have egg whites with it, depending on your cholesterol levels. Um, and just use like olive oil to spray down a pan, of course. But like that is wonderful. I love omelets. Egg white omelets are the best. <laughs> okay, all right, so egg white omelets. So you get rid of the yolk. I do. I do, yes. Okay, gotcha. All right, so, okay, so give us, now, now here's the thing that always gets me, these snacks. Because we're supposed to have a snack between breakfast and lunch. Like, yes. so what's, look, I, 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 I can't do celery sticks and carrots. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, yeah, so you can literally, well, uh, okay, so do you like peanut butter? Look at that. Oh, hell like no, I hate butter. peanut butter. I hate the smell of peanut butter. What just happened? No, we're here. We're here. We're connected. We're here. I still hate peanut butter. Mm. Jessica, you there? Yes, I'm here. I don't know what is wrong. Like, my internet has been working all day, and all of a sudden, it just sucks. Can you hear nah, me? Nah, that's your cricket phone. That's your cricket <laughs> phone. That's what it is. Oh, my hi, Dad. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, you said pe pe I don't like peanut butter. So what else, what, what else you got for me? Okay, so you got, um, okay, what is one? Okay, a great one is you can do yogurt and put like cinnamon in it. It's amazing. Um, you could do tuna. I don't know if you like tuna, but tuna and crackers are great. Um, you could do turkey okay. tacos, like turkey tacos, lettuce wraps. Okay, now that's the snack or the lunch? I use that as a lunch. Now, my, I mean, I use that as a snack. My lunch is, like, way, way more compact than that. So, like, for lunch, I will literally eat, like, sweet potatoes and, like, more of a meal. Turkey tacos will be, like, my snack because I eat so many meals throughout the day. So, typically, somebody will say you need three main meals and then two snacks in between that. I eat mostly, like, three to five um, meals per day, but it's short meals if that makes sense so i would cut my calories up in those meals so like for me my second meal i would eat something like turkey tacos lettuce wraps does that make sense okay yeah it makes sense got it now when it comes to eating okay so all right now here's the thing that this is the last question for you okay i keep hearing you shouldn't eat after seven or eight o'clock okay but, but what happens though if your if your work schedule is different so i'll just give a perfect example I normally don't go to bed till four or five o'clock in the morning because mm -hmm. I wake up. I wake up at eleven. My show's at six, okay, mm. and so I'm done at I'm done at eight. And so normally for for other folks who let's say get off at five right. and they go to bed five five or six hours later, that's sort mm. of what my clock is. And so. Um, what do you do when it talks about when you eat and, and how you should eat or whatever? 
So for me, because my schedule is kind of like the same way. Do not look at the times per se. Look at the, the like your duration. So when you wake up, you need to have your first meal 30 minutes after you wake within that time frame. Of course, if you're not doing fasted cardio or something like that, but to get your metabolism regulated, as soon as you wake up, after those 30 minutes occur, you need to be eating within that time frame and then start your meals from there. So if you eat, I'm not sure like what your body composition is and stuff like that to tell you how many meals you need to eat per day. But let's say you ate five meals a day. You would literally time right. it after that hour. So let's say you did 30 minutes when you wake up and then let's say you did three hours after that, you have your next meal. And then after that, you have your next meal. So it doesn't really matter like about the whole time. Don't eat uh, after eight o'clock or whatever, because as you said, like your metabolism is still running that late at night. Got it. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. uh, hold up. This is also okay. This is really the last question right here. Okay. okay. Um, this thing that that people talk about when you work out. I had one trainer. She said you should not focus on how much time you work out. Another trainer said you shouldn't be trying to count calories when you work out. Okay. So what the hell do I do? Do I is it is it like for today? I did the elliptical. I was on 32 minutes. Uh, I burned like 410 calories. Mm -hmm. Should I? Should it be 45 minutes? Should it be 500 calories? What's the deal? So the first trainer was right. Quality over quantity. It doesn't matter the duration of how long you work out because let me tell you, you can literally do a very intense exercise or workout where you do, let's say, 10 sprints that literally take 30 seconds each, right? So if you did 10 sprints at 30 seconds, that's five minutes on a treadmill and you will burn way more fat than the average person that walks on the treadmill for one hour on a three speed. Does that make sense? So it depends on how efficient yeah. that, that, that regulation is that's occurring. So when you talk about people doing high intensity interval training and things of that sort, um, and then in terms of counting your calories, um, that trainer's right as well, because think about it. If you run a mile on the treadmill, walk or run, it's typically about 100 calories. If you eat a banana, you literally put 80 calories right into your body immediately after that. Now, of course, it's great for oxygen levels, your O2 levels and stuff like that, but you want to make sure that you have a good balance. So strength training is great to make sure that like your metabolism is still running once you do, once you finish that, because you have like, I know time and time again, you have like people that are, I won't say like obese or whatever, but you have people that don't really understand how to work out and they'll go walk and they will get discouraged because they don't see results at all, but they're not doing anything that is helping them that is intense enough to burn that fat off of their body. That makes sense. So I got, so a person here, person on YouTube channel says, Treadmills are useless, in my opinion. Waste a lot of time, little muscle development. But is that part of the problem? If you're walking flat, what? Do, or should you take it up to an elevation of eight, nine, or ten on the treadmill? So great, great question. Because I actually have a treadmill here. I would show you. There are tons of things that you could use a treadmill for. Um, but it depends on how you're working out. So a waste of time is exactly what that person is saying. If you just get on a treadmill and you put it on three speed and you literally walk 60 minutes, like, okay, great. You know what I'm saying? You might see the miles on the treadmill, but typically people are holding, they're hovering over the treadmill and they aren't really working 
Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Uh, we oh got you. God. Go ahead. We got you. Keep going. Oh my God, this is stressing me out. Can you hear me? Yes, we got you. Go. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay, so um, where was I? So on the treadmill. Uh, treadmill. The treadmill. Yeah. So you could put it on three speed and then walk 60 minutes or whatever the case may be. But a lot of people, they're hovering over the treadmill. They aren't really using their um, their energy efficiency. So what I would say is definitely put the incline up and then like you could put the incline on 10 or 15. Take your hands off, put it on four speed and it's equivalent to running like three miles. Your legs will be wow. burning. Your legs will be Yes, burning. they will. Your legs will be burning. You will be breathing hard. But what it is, is it's putting your body at like an elevation. So it depends on how you use the treadmill. And also, even if it's on flat speed, you can just run sprints. Like you can run 15 sprints. And I used to do something where I used to have like this um, little interval that I used to go up. So I would start at seven speed and then I would run 30 seconds. This is for beginners. Start at seven speed, run 30 seconds. Then, like, hop to the sides, or you could take it down and walk 30 seconds. Then put it on 7.5, then walk again. And those those numbers aren't that high. If you need to, you could start at 4 and then go to 4.5, then 5, 5.5, 6, and 6.5. If you're a little more advanced, start at 7, 7.5, 8, 8.5, and 9, 9.5. Then you go back down. Okay? That All will right. end up being fit cool. All right, Jessica Lane, we appreciate it. Thanks so much. How can folks reach you? Um, you can email me or you can go to my Instagram. It's Jessica Lane, I-T-S-J-E-S-S-I-C-A-L-A-I-N-E. Or you can visit my website at fightforyourlife.org, F-I-G-H-T-F-O-R-Y-O-U-R-L-I-F-E.org. And lastly, I have a fitness app that just came out. It's called Just Fit. So if you go on Apple or Android, you can see it. Um, it's a purple icon, and literally it will get you all the way right. My fitness partner, her name's Tawanda, Tawanda Braxton, the Tony Braxton sister. We did a fitness app together, so it's all levels, um, incorporating beginners, intermediate, and advanced. All right, then. Jessica, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. All right, bye. All right, folks, going to close the show out, of course, uh, with our Bring the Funk fan club contributors, the people who gave 50 bucks or more. I told you I'm going to give you a shout-out uh, every single day, so let's go right to it. Alfonso Rodriguez, Andre Morris, Angela M. Parks, Anthony, uh, Aya Anelli International, Brian Jones, Carla Nichols, Carlos Rodriguez, Cedrica Sampson-Brown, Charity McFarland, Chauncey Turner, Clavin Wood, CMS, Corey Brown, David Roca, Deborah Borders, Deborah Orr, Dr. John Codwell, Erica Akins, Erica McCoy, uh, Estraletta Green, Georgia Brown, Herbie Holland, Jacqueline Link, Jean-Marie Roca, Jerry Cox, John, Junius Levi Whitaker, Karen Boykins Towns, Katricia Nolan, KC Digital Storyteller LLC, Leisha Fuller Martin, Marion Crooks, uh, Mark Hockett, uh, Marvin Dunstan, Michael Young, Monica Jones, Monique Dunstan, uh, Natoya, Nia Bailey, Pamela Johnson, Peters Full Stack Applications, Phyllis Olison, Progress for All, Reginald Fields, Renee Sumby, Ron Brew, Samaria Mendez, Samuel H. Smith, Shirley McGee, 
uh, Star Franklin, Terry Turner, Terrence Marshall, Tony Foster, Udo Salters Photography, and Wayne Mitchell, also Daria Jackson. So I want to thank all of you who've contributed to our show. Uh, folks, don't forget, right there on YouTube, I'm looking at y'all right now, uh, you can, of course, uh, go right on here and uh, give on our YouTube channel. Uh, we certainly would greatly appreciate that. Uh, your dollars make it possible for us to keep doing what we do. Hey, folks, there's no other show that doing what we're doing. No digital show out there. You got people who are out there talking for uh, for one day or two. We're here five days a week, bringing you the kind of information. Black coronavirus experts talking about the PPP program. All these critically important stories that are, that are important to us. CBC members on here every single day giving us direct information how Congress can actually is impacting us with public policy. And so we certainly appreciate uh, all of you who have given. Uh, if you want to give via cash app, you see it right here. Guys, go ahead and uh, pull the graphic back up, Anthony. Uh, that is our cash app. It's R, dollar sign, R, Martin, unfiltered. Now go to the other one you did. The one that was right next to me. Dollar sign, R, Martin, unfiltered. Uh, that's our cash app. We have uh, PayPal, which is paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered. And if you want to use a credit card, just simply go to rollinmartinunfiltered.com. You can use Square, uh, and we certainly appreciate that. All the people who have donated to us, people regardless of the amount, it doesn't matter. We appreciate all of that. You make this possible. All right, folks, I got to go. I'll see you guys tomorrow right here, Roland Martin Unfiltered. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Share our videos, retweet it, pass it around, because we're about empowering you and we're information we know is power, and that is important. We keep it real, keep it black, and keep it unfiltered. I got to go. 06! I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. 
So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.